What is your vision of the good life? If you could have this, what is your vision of the good life? And what is your plan to make that a vision, a reality in your life? The answers to those questions will determine both how you live today and what you hope for tomorrow. How you answer those questions will determine if God is simply a tool to use to get what you want or the one you love because he's all that you need. How you answer those questions will consider and determine if you presume upon God or humbly submit to him. And that's what James has for us this morning. He wants us to consider these things. And I'll tell you up front, this, this text has landed on me and I trust will land on you in some hard but helpful ways. So look at James chapter 4. I'll read verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. Amen. So in this passage, James lays out two choices, two paths of life. Prideful presumption upon God or humble submission to him. And that's what we'll consider this morning. First, let's ask and evaluate what it means to live in prideful presumption, assuming that God is there to do your business for you. Look again at verse 13. James is using a hypothetical situation to bring home a reality. When James writes, come now you who say, he's not thinking of isolated instances, but a pattern of life. He's saying, listen up. Those of you who speak and act and think like this all the time. And remember back to chapter 3. What we learned, words flow from what? The heart. So there's a a direct link between what we say and what's in our heart. The, The content of our speech reveals the core of our being. And notice the content of the speech here. These people discuss the when of their plans, today or tomorrow. These people discuss the where of their plans. We will go into such and such town. These people discuss the duration of their plans. We'll spend a year there. These people discuss the motive of their plans. Let's make a profit. And at first glance, we think, what's wrong with this? The issue is not planning, right? Over and over again, the Bible commends us to plan. We think about all of the Proverbs that that teach us to be wise with our time, to not be lazy sluggards is what Proverbs says. We can think of the life of Jesus. He wasn't haphazard. He planned. He intentionally went to places and times 
We think of the Apostle Paul. He made agendas and travel itineraries to travel all around. Planning is unavoidable. Scripture commends it and commands it. So the issue is not planning. And the issue is not working and making a profit. Right? So money itself isn't evil. Money is a necessary part of life. And to make money, we need to work. And again, the Bible commands us to be industrious, to seek to make money to provide to our our needs and bless those around us. Again, we can think of Proverbs 31, the industrious woman who uses all of her skills and gifts to make money. How we think of Paul's command to the church in Thessalonica. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So God isn't against work. He's not against making profits. So what's the issue? Prideful presumption. It's the motivation and orientation of the soul. Did you notice that God is glaringly absent from these plans? Did you notice the self-confidence and self-sufficiency of these plans? All we need to do is plan it, and we're strong enough to make it happen. To use the words from earlier in chapter 4, their own passions, their own desires are what are directing their lives. And what's James' conclusion in verse 16? Look at verse 16. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now glance back up to verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. These people are living in the exact opposite way that the Lord commands. These people are exhausting, exalting, boasting in themselves, not humbling themselves before the Lord. See, the James 4.13 lifestyle is one of arrogance, hubris, inflated self-importance. Here's the funny thing about the James 4.13 lifestyle. It ignores God while presuming upon God. For it is only by God that we have breath and we live. Prideful presumption, you see, sees life as a right, not to divine mercy. Prideful presumption places me at the center of my plans to get and gain. And because of this, it often leads to anger when things don't go my way. It often leads to bitter jealousy when others have what I want. It often leads to using others instead of serving them. Prideful presumption agrees with the words of the poem Invictus. Maybe some of you are familiar with this poem. Written by William Ernest Hindley, and it ends this way. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, Recently, a beverage company used this tagline. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Is the crescendo of their emotion-evoking, visually captivating, beautifully produced commercial. Why? Because it's thought. That's the good life. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We're tempted to believe the good life is a cocktail of endless choices mixed with selfish ambition that we gulp down to enjoy immediate pleasures, all while assuming tomorrow is a guaranteed reality that is mine for the taking. And if we're a Christian, if we say we're a Christian before we drink that cocktail, 
we shake it up and put Jesus as a cherry on top. But is that really the good life? What is the real outcome of the life lived according to James 4.13? Remember back to James chapter 1, verse 11. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Shallow, immediate pleasures and profit never are enough. We reach the goal, the salary number, a career position, a degree, a life status, a dream vacation, the perfect house, only to find the goalposts have moved. The James 4.13 lifestyle results in hustle and hurry, stress and sleepless nights, always chasing and never catching. And here's why it's not enough. You can't stuff yourself with the crumbs of the world and expect to be satisfied. Why? Because God has made the taste buds of your soul to long for a greater feast. It's not going to satisfy. And James wants to wake us up to help us see that the James 4.13 lifestyle is not the good life. It doesn't lead to true happiness. In reality, it's nothing but a hamster on a wheel. And soon enough, your days are over. So here's the question we must ask, brothers and sisters. Are there areas of prideful presumption in your life? Are you approaching your calendar and your career as a practical atheist? Would your plans and priorities and ambitions be different if Jesus didn't walk out of the grave? Or are your plans really just the American dream baptized with Christian language? Is Jesus just a garnish on your personal autonomy to decide what you want to do and when you want to do it? Beloved brothers and sisters, if our plans and ambitions are no different than the world around us, what does that say about our hope and joy in Christ? Parents, what are we teaching our children if our goals for them have more to do with success and fitting into the world rather than savoring Jesus and standing up for him. Do your, do your desires for your children just happen to match exactly what the American dream says? See, the James 4.13 lifestyle diminishes joy and distorts the beauty of Christ. It's unattractive even to those around us. And let me be clear. I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. I've been confronted and convicted this week, evaluating my own hearts and my own desires. Many of you know because you've received my phone calls, you've had the conversations, you've got my text messages this week. I'm just as susceptible to this as you are. I need you. And you need me and we need each other. We have to help each other fight prideful presumption. I'm so thankful that I have you in my life. And so let me encourage you not just to try to process this individually. Talk to fellow church members. Grab people in your community group. Grab those you're discipling and meeting with. It, invite them to speak into your life and you into theirs. Because remember, beloved, James is not just writing to, to one Christian standing over in a corner. He's writing to groups of Christians. 
Personal insight is the product of community. And God has given us each other that we might help each other. And I'm so thankful for the ways that you help me and help each other do that. And for my non-Christian friends, I'm so thankful that you've gathered with us this morning. And I wonder what part of this is compelling to you. Maybe you came here this morning because you've been living a James 4.13 lifestyle and it hasn't delivered what it promised. I can relate with you, friend. That's my story of how I came to faith in Christ. I was, I was quite successful planning and traveling and making a profit. I had achieved the American dream. National level manager, Fortune 100 company, Mid-twenties, making six figures, house, two-car garage, fenced-in backyard, cul-de-sac. I paid a little lip service to God every now and then. But I was living for my kingdom, my comfort, my priorities, my plans. And in my honest moments, those quiet moments before I'd go to sleep, those times when I really considered, what is my life? Who am I becoming? Is this really all there is? I realized I was empty. And this is the very thing the Lord used to bring me to himself. He showed me there's a better way. The good life is different than what I had imagined. It's not easy. In fact, I would say the true good life is harder and it's messier. But, oh, it's so much better. And so, friend, if this is you, I would invite you to, to talk to the person who invited you here this morning. Come talk to me. We'd, we'd love to show you and keep walking with you to show that Christ gives a better life. And brothers and sisters, we have to remember James is not telling us these things to steal our joy, but to secure it. James wants us to seek pleasure. James wants us to seek profits. But he wants us to do it in a way that our joy will be full and our pleasures will last and our profits will make an impact far greater than our little transient kingdoms. See, James wants us to have a vision of the good life that compels us to live in humble submission to God. And what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. James gives us two things. Live in humble submission by having an accurate view of ourselves and live in humble submission by having an accurate view of the Lord himself. So let's look at each of those. First, live in humble submission to God by having an accurate view of yourself. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. To wake us up from the stupor of prideful presumption, James cracks open the smelling salts, doesn't he? And he says, listen, your knowledge of the future is limited. And even more, so is your life. James says, come on, bro. Really? Who do you think you are? You don't know what, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Make plans, have ambitions, but do so with an open hand and humble hearts. Even this week, as, as you ladies plan for the, the, the women's retreat, we know how quickly a little stomach bug can just derail entire plans. 
right? We all know that a, a thunderstorm completely out of our control can lay waste to our best laid plans. Simple things. Here's the truth. Any one of us, our phones could ring this very moment and our lives would be turned upside down. Right now. We're not in control. In fact, what does James say? You are a what? You are a what? A mist. James compares our whole life to a mist. Think about that. On a cool morning, you go out and you say something or you breathe and it's a mist. And how quick does it last? It goes right away. Or think about when you, when you take a shower, a hot shower, and the, the mirror fogs up. And you open the door and the fog disappears. James says, that's your life. He's calling us to consider the brevity of life. Life is fleeting and fleeting and fragile. Is this not one of the things COVID has taught us? The ticker of how many people have passed is it and went across our TV screen for two years? Right? Every time we put a mask on, we're admitting life is fragile and fleeting. We can put it this way. James is saying, if you had a biography written about your life, a fitting title would be missed. And the tagline appeared for a little while, then vanished. How's that for your swagger, bro? The reality of our mortality is profoundly humming. It's the great equalizer. Nobody escapes it. I'm not indispensable and neither are you. From dust we came, to dust we will return. Isaiah says it this way. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the God stands forever. The psalmist says it this way. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Jesus captures this truth in a parable. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's the point of James, Isaiah, Psalmist, Jesus, the whole council and chorus of scripture. We are not promised tomorrow. And what we do accumulate for ourselves will soon be forgotten after we're gone. A mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Let's try this. Raise your hand if you know your grandmother's full name. Grandmother's full name. Okay, look around a little bit. Most hands are up. All right, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you know your great-grandmother's full name. All right, put them down. Raise your hand if you know your great-great-grandmother's full name. One. 
What's that tell us? A few generations and people in your own family are going to forget that you lived. I'll be forgotten by the world. So will you. And here's James point. Why live for and be controlled by the world when it will soon forget you lived at all? James is not trying to scare and manipulate. He's trying to free and liberate. He, re- he wants to remind us of the uncertainty of tomorrow and the certainty of our death to bring, to break prideful presumption, but not pull us away from joy. He wants us to consider these things that we might truly live, live for something in someone greater. See, Christian brothers, we don't have to deny these things. We don't have to despair over the fact that our life is a mist. We don't have to despair that we'll be forgotten. We can be realistic and rejoice at the same time. Because this truth, death, says we're not too important to die. And the world will soon forget us. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus says something altogether different. The gospel says you're important enough that God the Father didn't forget you. You're important enough that God the Father would send his willing eternal son, Jesus Christ, who died for you if you would confess your pride and trust in him. That on the cross, Jesus paid the price for all of our evil, prideful presumption. On the cross, Jesus humbly submitted himself to the Father. Jesus planned his life and set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Not to gain an earthly prophet, but to die a sinner's death. But that's not the end of the story. See, Jesus' life was not a vapor. He rose again, victorious over the grave. And so now all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, the payment for their pride and presumption will not perish, but have eternal life. This means we can know God and have a relationship with him now. Through Jesus, we're reconciled to the Father. They send the Holy Spirit to take residence in our soul that we might know God and be known by him. See, the world will forget us and we're unknown. The gospel said, God does not, and you are known. Isn't this what you want? To be known fully and loved truly. See, so often we make plans like James 4.13 because we think we need to prove our worth, that we need to show the world that we're good enough, we're lovable enough. God says, no. You don't have to hide your failures. You don't have to prove your lovability. Instead, he says, I'll prove my love for you on the cross. And we know his love is secure because the tomb is empty. We're not just going to celebrate that next Sunday. We're celebrating it today too. And the week after, and the week after, and the week after. The tomb is empty. Beloved, in order for you to fall out of God's loving embrace... Christ would be, have to be pulled out of heaven and put back in the tomb. That ain't going to happen. He is Lord of lords, King of kings. And one day soon, he's re- returning to restore all things back to the way they're supposed to be. Heaven on earth. So brothers and sisters, we aren't defeated by death. We don't have to, we don't have to live and plan and scheme for this world. We, we overcome through our resurrected and reigning Savior. And we live and plan for a better world. We are bound for the promised land, beloved. This is the good life. And here's the paradox. This is what I've been considering all week. We may not know what tomorrow brings, but we do know what eternity holds. 
at times this week, that's been confusing and frustrating. But even more, it's comforting. It's comforting. Because here's the thing, if, if, if all there is is this world, then we should do everything we can to live according to James 4.13. If all there is is this world, you should do it. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then there's, there's a better way. And we, we can be honest about our present and hopeful for our future, not just hopeful tomorrow, but hopeful for a thousand years from now. A thousand years and a thousand years. That's what we're hopeful about. So our lives are fleeting and finite. There's no need to pretend otherwise. It's actually good for us to remember this. As one pastor says, when the reality of death is far from our minds, the promise of Jesus seems detached from our lives. Jesus is emphasizing our frailty. James is emphasizing our frailty that we might enjoy the freedom of following Jesus and find joy no matter what we face no matter what we accomplish, no matter what we don't accomplish. See, James isn't interested in boosting our self-esteem and our swagger. If you didn't figure that out, that's not his game. His aim is to help us boast in our Savior. That's what he wants. Because he knows that's a a life, the true good life, doesn't hinge on our little personal transient kingdoms that are here today and gone tomorrow. He's calling us to plan and live and center our life around God's kingdom, which is eternal. So live in humble submission by having an accurate view of yourself. And live in humble submission to God by having an accurate view of the Lord himself. Verse 15. Look there. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do you notice the difference between verse 13 and verse 15? So verse 13, centered on self I am in control. I will make it happen. I will do this. Verse 15 starts with humble submission. If the Lord wills. A life of humble submission to God understands and acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty. That he is in control. When we say if the Lord wills, we join Job who said, I know that you, Lord, can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We join the psalmist who wrote, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We join Isaiah who prophesied about God. And God said, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. We join the author of Hebrews who proclaimed he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's what we confess when we say, if the Lord wills. And so is James saying, every time we make a statement about the future, we have to, we have to add on the qualifier, if the Lord wills. We're going to sing a song after this sermon, if the Lord wills. I'm going to eat dinner with my family tonight, if the Lord wills. We're going to gather again for Easter next week, if the Lord wills. Is that what James is saying? I don't think so. This is not a mindless superstition we just tack on to our speech. The Lord isn't into formulas. He's into the frame of our soul. That's what he's after. That's what James is talking about. Orientation of a soul. That doesn't require certain phrases. Yet at the same time, 
I think it's helpful on occasion to verbalize if the Lord wills or God willing. I think it's good for us because our speech both shapes and reinforces what we believe. And so I think it's good sometimes just to say, if the Lord wills. It's a reminder that our plans do not, do not belong to us and our lives do not belong to us. So James says, if the Lord wills, we will live. So the duration of our lives is in the hands of God. The Lord governs how many days we have. See, our, here's the ironic thing. Our lives are fleeting as a mist, but they're not sustained by chance, by mechanical process, or by karma. They're sustained by the Lord himself. Here's the thing, to paraphrase an old saint. We are immortal until Christ's work for us is done to do. We are immortal until Christ's work for us to do is done. Let that sink in. Yes, we are a mist. And yes, we are immortal until God's work in us and for us is done. So we don't have to worry and be anxious about tomorrow. Our life is in the hands of our Father who loves us and cherishes us. If the Lord wills, we will live. And if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. The Lord governs our lives and what happens in them. Uh, the Lord is not a watchmaker who winds us up and then sets us off to, and watches us run around. He's intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. Our perceived successes and perceived failures are part of his plans. All that we accomplish and all that we don't come according to his steadfast sovereignty. All of our godly desires that are met and the ones left unmet are due to his merciful providence. James is inviting us to embrace the Lord's mysterious providence in our plans. This is not easy, and it's not always enjoyable. We often don't understand what the Lord is up to. Why would he let that tragic event happen to me? Why would the Lord not fulfill my godly desire for a spouse, for a child? Why would the Lord overlook, why would the Lord arrange things so that I'm overlooked for that promotion? Why would the Lord cause me to go through that financial hardship or that exhausting parenting challenge? Why didn't the Lord protect me from the wounds of that relationship or that grievous sins against me? Why would the Lord ordain that I be rejected from that school or rejected by those friends? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. Everything that comes into our lives first passes through the hands of our all-wise, all-loving Father, James chapter 1. And he withholds nothing. He withholds nothing that will diminish our eternal joy. But it's hard. As one brother in the church texted me this week, he said, everything that comes into our lives come from the hands of our skilled Father who's a carpenter. Sometimes it's a pity we're such tough pieces of wood. In the midst of hurt and hardship, it can seem, these truths can seem like cold comfort. It can feel like God doesn't care. And it's in these times we must remember this is not just something God tells us to do. It's something he's done in the person of Christ himself. 
Jesus himself in the face of suffering said to his heavenly father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And how did Jesus say this? How could he operate this way? For the joy set before him, Hebrews tells us, he endured the cross. A vision of future glory compelled Christ to live under the banner, if the Lord wills. Same is true for us. We may not get all that we desire in this life. And that's okay. Because life is but a vapor. And remember, all who trust in Christ are bound for the promised land. That's the truly good life. The number of our days and all that happens in them is under his control. So we humbly submit our lives to him. We humbly submit our plans to him. That's what James is getting at in verse 17. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You see what James is saying? The concern is not just sins of commission, that is, that is ways that we choose, actively choose to rebel and disobey God. The concern is deeper and more pervasive. It's sins of omission or the good God honoring things we know we should do and we don't. So in this particular context, James is saying the people living like verse 13 are not make, are not taking the Lord's will into account when making plans. And this is sin. Do you see how deep James is driving? He's, he, sin is not just our actions. It's our affections. It's our ambitions. That's what James is getting at. Because see, on the surface, the people in verse 13 were not doing anything blatantly wrong. We talked about that. And in fact, their, their activities, as it were, were permissible. Work, make money, travel. You can do that. But they were given to and driven by these things. What they might be able to do so captured their soul, they neglected what the Lord said they must do. They were making plans according to their will, not the Lord's. Even if those things they were planning weren't inherently sinful, they so filled up their lives, they neglected what the Lord said is most important. Let me put it this way. They were living by what was permissible, not primarily by what was profitable. And by profitable, I don't mean money, I mean soul. I think we face the same danger. There's much, much, much freedom in the Christian life. Yet if we're not careful, we will use that freedom as God's rubber stamp on our plans and our ambitions. This is my burden for us, beloved. This is where the Lord has really been working on. This is, I have a burden for us that we may be living in verse 17 more than we realize. We can self-justify by saying, There's nothing wrong with taking that job in that city. There's nothing sinful about going on that weekend trip. It's okay to miss church so our kids can play sports on Sunday mornings. Let me be clear. Those things are true. There, these all, the, all these things that I'm getting ready to go into can be done in God honoring ways. 
I'm not talking about isolated instances, and I'm not trying to guilt. I'm trying to get us to do this. Have you stepped back and considered the totality of your decisions? Have you considered how your plans shape not just what you do, but who you are becoming? James is saying, as you develop plans, as you direct ambitions, do so as the Lord wills, not just as you want. And here's the thing. I know the Lord's will for you. Your sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. No matter what you do, no matter where you are, no matter what decision you make, that's the Lord's will for you. Your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians tells us that. The most thing God wants most for you, his concern is that you become more like Jesus and you help others do the same. That's his will for you. And that, that truth must inform our plans and our decisions. Let me bring this home a little bit. Should you move for that job, to buy that house, to go to that school? Well, have you asked, is there a healthy church nearby? Have you considered that before you make those plans? Because this is God's will for you, that you gather with his people. Should you take that promotion? Well, have you considered the cost of the promotion? Typically, we think about all the gain we get with a promotion. But how do you consider the cost? How do you consider that it might, it might compromise the way you can serve your church, your family, meet with others? Should you date him or her? Well, have you evaluated the relationship beyond your emotions and it's fun? Have you considered, do they love Jesus? Like, really, do they really love Jesus? Do they help me love Jesus? Do we have the same vision of Christ and his church that we can live it out together? Should you go on that trip or let your kids play that sport? Well, have you considered how this might compromise your ability to gather with the church on Sundays? Have you thought, beloved, have you thought about how much church you actually miss? And I humbly suggest it's probably more than you realize. And have you considered how this affects your ability to serve, to be known, and to know others? Is your schedule so full of good things that you don't have time to meet with others, disciple them, and help them follow Jesus? Are you so committed to so many things that you're really not committed to anything but yourself and your plans? I understand these questions are probing. You may even feel yourself being prickly and defensive. I get it. You might be thinking, Joey, who do you think you are? You're just a fuddy-duddy trying to take all my fun and freedom. Well, for those of you that know me, I I trust that you know that's not my heart. Those of you that don't know me, I trust you know that's not my heart. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm getting at, again, pattern of life, pattern of life, 
Who am I becoming? What is my vision of the good life? And how is that affecting the way I make decisions today? I've been praying all week. We gladly receive God's word and we rejoice where it is work in our lives. And it's at work, beloved. I've talked to some of you that have thought about job promotions and you've decided to take them after careful consideration. I've talked to others of you that have thought about job promotions and you've actually not taken them because it would have compromised your ability to serve Christ in various ways. Same thing about moves and jobs and churches. I praise God for that. At the same time, there's work that we have to do. And where God is calling us to repentance, we need to repent and follow Christ and have that as the vision of our good life. So, beloved, let's continue helping each other pursue not just what is permissible, but what is profitable. Right? To use the words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, let's first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll be added to us as well. Let that be the frame of our soul. Because this is truly the good life. Life lived not just for that which will soon be taken away. But a life marked by a love for Jesus who gave himself for us. A life of prideful presumption upon God tries to control the future. Fitting everything into our small little vision of the good life. But it's a mist. It's a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. A life of humble submission compelled by the future understands all that God has given to us in Christ in promises now and forever, eternal, everlasting. Which will you plan for? Which will you pursue? It all boils down to this question. What is your vision of the good life? Let's pray. God, we come to you. We throw ourselves upon you. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would grant conviction where it is needed. You would grant a joy in Christ where you are at work. I pray that we would be a church that lives in humble, joyful, Christ-exalting submission to you, knowing the good life and all that you hold out for us in Jesus. Let this be what compels us together to treasure Christ together as we sojourn toward heaven. Give us grace, O Lord, to do this for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.